Stephen Hawking was a pretty smart character, and that's an understatement. And when he said, you know, people asked him, what's the biggest threat to, you know, life as we know it, it wasn't even nuclear war. It was AI. Because, like, the robots are going to say, like, we don't need the people anymore, and... He said, you know, basically, first-generation AI, the very first thing they'll do, it will do is learn how to program itself to be better, faster, uh, more sentient, and second, and maybe that occurs in pick how many seconds, and then third generation, better, faster yet, and by the time they get to the fifth generation, it will be analyzing whether or not it needs the human race to survive. Don't buy it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a great movie script, but... Uh... Uh, hey, I'm just... Uh... <laughs> No, I mean, and I that's know? why the Not term is scary, theory, and right? I don't think it's, uh, frankly, very helpful, to be honest <laughs> with you. Artificial, everything's, you know, a big embellishment, and you got to be hyperbolic about things. I get it. Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert in AI, but, you know, I definitely see more. I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong on that, but I would think Jim was talking just a minute ago about just some of the software that's available now, and it's been a, around for a while, I'm sure, but... You know, that you can quickly reorient your building and get a, you know, full 8760 hourly simulation on what the impact is based on historical weather data for 30 years on your site. I don't know, but that's, you know, that's pretty advanced stuff. Hey guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferrier, and here with me today is Nick Taliska, Jim D. Pasquale, and Mark Sankey, and we are the Building Hot Rodders. In today's podcast, we'll be changing gears a little bit from our last episodes and diving into a discussion about the future of buildings and energy. So we have a lot to cover in this episode, and let's dive right in. To start off, I think a good talking point is just discussing how things have changed, and I'll let you guys maybe chime in on this more than me, um, but... You know, not necessarily equipment technology, but how like building systems were designed, installed, commissioned, and operated. Yeah, I mean, it's a wide open, I mean, question, uh, Clayton. <laughs> I, I don't really know where to start with this. I mean, we have on the call here, I don't know, we got people in their fifth decade, fourth decade, third, maybe, right? Six. Second decade. Yeah. Or, I mean, so we've all seen a lot. I mean... I don't know if we could imagine a lot of what we've seen in the building technologies over the years. You know, could you predict 15 years ago some of the technologies you guys are designing now into your systems? <laughs> well, I think maybe we could have predicted, but I, I actually sat in a meeting, in a big sales meeting with a Fortune 500 company, controls manufacturer, in 1981. And the chief executive officer stood in front of us all and said that direct digital controls will never replace pneumatic controls in commercial buildings in 1981. A year later, uh, we were busy selling a rush to market product. I mean, that's, you know, you talk about us not being able to envision changes Heck, there were people that were supposed to have their finger on the pulse of the whole marketplace and were completely disconnected. So, you know, we all run the risk of using what were our experiences to predict the future. Well, 
they're probably not even, that's not a good database to predict from. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. It's a lot easier to be wrong than it is to be right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I must say, um, you know, getting into the industry when I did, you know, one of, the, one of the first new chillers I experienced was a magnetic bearing chiller. And I know we talked about, you know, the, the specific technology in some of our other podcasts, but, um, you know, just looking at that and thinking, man, this is some crazy technology. I, I have to imagine a lot of people did not anticipate this. I mean, how it works, I don't know. It's just, it's impressive to me. So well, yeah. equipment wise, I you know, that's what I have to say. <laughs> no, and I think the technology will only, always get obviously more technological, but even thinking about the other parts that go into this, you know, the people, how, how have we changed as far as how we work together and how will that change in the future? Maybe a lot of it's due to, you know, 2020 was a pretty wild year for, you know, energy consumption. We're going to see and how people worked and lived yep. and going forward, uh, you know, and you hear about the real estate issues, commercial real estate, let alone residential and the shifts that are being done there. But what do we see with how new buildings are going to be built? Any thoughts there? Well, I think they're going to be a lot more um, energy conscious as opposed to, you know, in the past. Well, I think you're you're going to see that, and then also a focus on indoor air quality. You know, after the beautiful year of 2020. Yeah, outside air intake. Yeah. Um, it, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I think it will. And there's going to be, well, maybe potentially a little bit of a battle between um, energy and IAQ because, you know, you're going to have it. They kind of fight each other a little bit. The more it's we, you know, at one end of the spectrum, we try to minimize ventilation to, because it's more energy intensive, um, you know, to reheat or cool and dehumidify outdoor air versus indoor air in most cases. Um, yeah, I think I, I've already seen that. You know, we've already seen some like temporary guidelines and uh, regulations for increased filtration requirements in certain facilities in certain states. Um, already from, uh, you know, COVID. Yeah, that's so. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Jim. Even that was interesting to me, though. Like, I remember hearing about that being, you know, that was the, you know, in the state we live, the strict guideline to reopen, to have anybody in your facility, you have to change your filtering requirements or your outside air intake. And um, I was just like, who, who's like regulating this or watching this or, you know, monitor? I mean, like the systems weren't designed for this and now we have to have this and who like how i mean you know what you know where i'm getting kind of how do we know yeah well i you know i think specifically to that um maybe that's a political decision i don't know nothing political at all about it i think it (laughs) i think you were we were dealing with something new we didn't understand a lot about at the time and we had to, uh, you know, make decisions with the data we had. Yeah. So, for example, you know, putting a MERV 13 filter in a commercial rooftop unit or even a lot of residential type units, um, you know, most of those systems could handle a MERV 13 with little or um, sometimes no modifications. And now is that going to 100% stop the spread no right. but it could be a very low cost low risk modification mm-hmm. 
that could help mitigate if this thing is spreading um, through aerosolized particles and it's airborne and it's not, you know, just spreading through droplets that are dropping by gravity right. within six to 10 feet of right. the person. Right. I just said a bunch of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so. But that's how, that's how legislation gets formed. Yeah. Is by relatively uh, uninformed folks hypothesizing based on the input of lobbyists and, you know, those kinds of groups that say, well, if you do this, you'll cut your infection rate or spread rate and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And, magically legislation so, appears which is always based on a lot of data yeah it's based on conjecture the filter manufacturing lobbyists were pushing on this one then <laughs> well, it's, yeah. important, well, it's important to keep that in mind yeah. you know there's that's definitely they definitely had pressures and if you follow the money yeah. you know you could figure out where a lot of the pressure's coming from but you know we're still learning a, a lot of you know about this and it's funny at the beginning of this the data we had was it seemed that it, that if uh, poorly ventilated spaces um, with high occupancy was where the spread in a super spreader event seemed to be occurring. So you would think that, well, you know, that type of, we need a lot of ventilation, perhaps high ventilation. It's plausible that this is spreading through air conditioning. And then we learn more and more about it. We're still learning about it. Um, you know, when you look at most, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds on yeah. this and totally derail our conversation. <laughs> it's a good conversation, though. <laughs> but, you know, if a ceiling supply, ceiling return uh, HVAC system, you're relying on capturing the virus in those ceiling returns. You know, how likely is it to be mm -hmm. there? If you're using a MERV-13, you're not capturing 100% or near that of the of virus particle. You know, so a lot has... Once you start putting thought into it, you start to get into the actual effectiveness of these solutions and you can make better decisions on where to spend your money. Like you might be better off with a different protocol that has nothing to do with your HVAC system. Um, I don't know. I just like, like Mark was getting to, I think it's not, you have, we have to be careful because a lot of these things may end up sticking in it may not make sense for it. Well, that's why Clayton, I think you had a great question there about like who's, well, if you said monitoring this or making sure, but yeah, you know, I mean, we have ventilation standards now for a classroom, right? And we all think it's really important that you provide that much CFM per occupant. But how many times have you gone into a building and you find out they're not ventilating, ventilating to that standard, let alone replacing filters? So, you're, you're absolutely I mean, I correct. I think this is yeah. a huge, when you talk about the future of buildings, whether it's you know building new buildings or most likely retrofitting buildings, what we're looking at yep. and repurposing them mm -hmm. for a, who knows what the workforce will look like going forward. Uh, you know, the people have adjusted and made, you know, you know, they're getting jobs done for the most part still, but the buildings is very concerning. So that's why I was kind of curious about what, you know, are there standards in the work? Does it come down to filtration or is it ventilation? Or maybe it's still too early to figure all that out. Well, I must say, like from what I understand it, I think it's still a little too early. Um, but, you know, in relevance to the conversation, I think, you know, the, the buildings of the future or, you know, the retrofitted buildings of the future are definitely going to be more... Um, conscious of 
the the quality of like HVAC systems and and stuff like that being put in place as opposed to just slapping the cheapest rooftop unit you got and you know keep it warm enough so people don't complain mm. I would imagine that definitely changes yeah and the flexibility to serve the needs you're saying well, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think you I hope a lot of this is fully codified or at least uh, standards are set by ASHRAE probably as an expansion of you know the demand controlled ventilation requirements because really if there's additional ventilation required is it re is it required 24 7 do we pay the energy penalty for that you know to flush the building during off hours or will it still only be required when there is you know measured increase in occupancy and i think you know ashray as a group generally applies the science to this versus the knee-jerk reaction of change the filters so hopefully we'll see you know those standards written improved and you know understand how we apply the standards uh consistently i hope I, I think that's the logical place it would fit mark as far as in the co2 and the you know indoor air quality obviously but how many years do you think that will take well hopefully not many i mean ashray in general has their you know they release a standard for comments etc but hopefully they will move it along more quickly based on the the enormity and impact of i, I would rather see ashray move this faster because otherwise we'll have a whole uh, a plethora of ad hoc modifications that get made that may or may not actually improve the environment in the long term uh, and, and achieve the intended goal of you know reducing infections and those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, I think a lot of it's perception based right now. I got new filters. We're good. Or, you know, whatever makes the people feel good too. To some extent, right. <laughs> I don't know. Right. No, that's a huge part of building operations. Yeah. I mean, I agree, but no, there definitely, I think, needs to be, you know, something a little bit more robust uh, developed. But again, you know, the novelness and all that, notwithstanding, but people want to get back into their buildings and back into their quote unquote normal routines. And buildings are a good place to get work done, you know, obviously. So I don't know. Maybe I think it's been, maybe nothing will change. Uh, What's I, I I you know based on your thoughts, Nick? You know what do we put in buildings? What are we going to put in buildings? Will there? I mean, I see the whole work from home uh, as a, a total change in the way work gets done, and it you know many employers see it as a positive thing in general and may never return to, you know, aggregation in an office space. Well, yeah. And I'm sure there's, I mean, I'm sure that's a big part of it. You know, companies that were going to have a headquarters someplace and consolidate their workforce for all the economies of scale that go along with that, you know, then you just get hit with a big, you know, black swan event and everything that you thought goes out the window. And so it'll be interesting to see how they, get back into that situation. And then like Jim said too, you know, will there be temporary solutions that won't be necessarily, I think Jim said it, and, and maybe will not be a part of everything going forward. 
And then you need to be flexible in what you do, I suppose. I don't know. I guess that's why they call it the future. We don't really know. <laughs> we're going to predict it in this podcast. Well, we're though. getting closer. I can tell. I, I, <laughs> so, like, where does, um, like, availability of information come into play in this conversation? Like, even, I guess, for instance, even with what, what, what we are talking about with, um, you know, the virus, I could Google what to do and I bet you I could find 10 different, you know, pieces of information saying you should do this because somebody said that filters make it better or more outside air or whatever. Um, does that help how facilities are are operating, will operate? Um, you know, will that cause people to maybe make some decisions that aren't as, I don't know what the right word is, fact-based, but, you know, reality-based? I don't know. Well, I think the big thing, if you're whenever you're analyzing data, you have to understand that correlation does not necessarily, you know, mean causation. Meaning that if you see a pattern or a trend, you have to dig into why, the why behind it. Yes. Um, you know, so like if, like my example earlier, we were seeing that highly or poorly ventilated spaces tend to be where super spreader events occur. Um, now, if we don't put any further thought into it, we can make the assumption that, you know, we need to overventilate everything, yeah. but perhaps those types of spaces have something else going on. Maybe there's higher density of yeah. people in those types of spaces, yep. you know, but poorly ventilated spaces tend to be higher density. And maybe that close contact is, enabling super spreader events you know there's other things that may be causing it so whenever you're looking at that data you just have to keep that in mind um and always do that you know second order you have to go beyond that first order logic just to make before you make some big systemic decisions you know aside from that example i feel like that just it happens so much in our industry for everything though it happens yeah everywhere. I mean, well, that's like a, you got to change the, the, the way people think. <laughs> and maybe that's something, an immediate benefit that will come out of this. You know, as we talk about, well, we need to increase ventilation. And then you get to, well, how much are, is this particular building ventilating now? And if we're doing the same old things, like going mm -hmm. back to drawings from 15 years ago or worse, and trying to figure out, well, this is what they're ventilating at now then you're not looking at the right data to start with. So maybe there'll be more of a focus on let's commission our buildings and make sure we're doing at least what we thought we should be doing at this point. And then not finding out, oh, we're really yep. only ventilating 5% where it should have been 20. Yeah. And, and that's yep. the risk of all the changes that might be done, whether it's filtration or, or different types of technologies that need to be retrofit. There's going to be a, you know, a capital cost impact to it. And will this be, Mm -hmm. uh, subsidized by the government or you know there's different the trickle down from these leading organizations and i agree ashray would have to be number one to come out with something i would think uh i don't know if there's many others that would have the same level of authority but then that needs to be you know work through you know the state legislatures i guess and get into their building codes is that typically how it would work well yeah i mean I, a lot of the the ventilation um, code requirements are found in the mechanical code. Uh, well, you know, the states typically adopt 
from the International Mechanical Code. And then the Mechanical Code typically, yeah, the Mechanical and Energy Code typically refer to ASHRAE, you know, 62.1, 90.1 for their ventilation and energy requirements. So there is that little bit of a trickle down where, you know, ASHRAE is the one, the organization, you know, typically setting the standards and it finds its way into the codes at the state level. Uh, but my, you know, we've already got some pretty good codes and kind of touching upon what you were saying, Nick, um, I have a feeling we could be more, perhaps more effective just enforcing or making sure that our current codes and design and the buildings are running as intended, you know, and to the current codes, you know, rather than perhaps legislating new codes. Um, I, that in my experience, it I, I just feel like a lot of these renovations I do um, are just nothing's running. Yeah, as de designed yeah. or meeting the the codes at the time it was constructed. Yeah. Well, Jim, Jim, I, I guess so. Let's just we'll, we'll go to an example. Two years ago, we were at a building, a big office building, about ten miles from your house, and you know, the uh, owner, uh, developer, had been approached by a big um, ESPC, said, we would like to do a performance contract here. We have high fuel costs. We have high you know, high energy, high high thermal costs. And uh, so I went to the walkthrough one, you know, walkthrough with the, with the uh, ESPC just to, okay, what's here? And we got to, uh, so it was a, a large building served by five air handlers on big air handlers on five different floors as their primary ventilation source. So we go in the mechanical room and then that was basically, you were in the mixing plenum, you know, in the, uh, off the corridor. And so I can see the return air and the other wall is completely blocked by dial board. I mean, nice install, put it all up, nice frame, all taped up tight. What's that? That's that's the outside air intake. Zero outside air to the building. So, in that scenario, Jim, what is the enforcement entity? Or first of all, you know, there's many many downsides. But you know, what I see as the downside is there's an expectation of the occupants that they're provided adequate, yeah, fresh air. <laughs> yeah, we, we have we have enough yeah. air. To when breathe. I go into a building, I, um, I assume that it's it's properly ventilated. Yes. Right. But then secondarily, who's the enforcement entity for that violation? Well, the, the enforcement that the, the codes are legislated at the state level, they're enforced at the local level and specifically to ventilation. They, there is no like yearly tests and inspections like you see with fire protection systems right like you know if you have a fire sprinkler system right they're going to come by every year and inspect it you know test it make sure test it's it. operating as intended nothing like that as far i've never seen anything like that with ventilation systems that's kind of my point is all the uh enthusiasm and will change mm -hmm. the the uh standards and will change the code in in practical application, it all comes down to 
the motivation, diligence, you know, ethics of the building owner, the maintenance people, whether they're even cognizant of what the impact yeah, is. Yeah, I think that's a big one. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, you're not going to, who, who's going to come by with their um, CO2 uh, sensor or their O2 sensor and walk in the building and say, hey, we're here to check your indoor air quality. Uh, that, that's 100% um, you know, self-policing, which yep. in some cases means no policing. Yeah, especially when you know, making sure you have proper ventilation means your utility bills probably are going to go yeah. up. That's right. Well, you know? we talked about that and uh, I don't know, We for our listeners, we had a couple other podcast series and uh, maybe it was Energy and same thing, um, you know, you go into a facility that whatever wants to save energy or do something. And the first thing you find is they blocked off all their outside air intakes. And mm -hmm. now you're going to say, well, it's going to cost you more money, but you have to operate correctly because yeah, they closed it because they were spending a lot of money in the wintertime to ventilate. And somebody had the bright idea to just say, well, let's block out all the cold air. <laughs> So, yeah, I think in the, the future of buildings to keep it in the podcast, I know we kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole of like COVID and, and air quality, but there will just be more of a, a conscious effort, hopefully, to make sure our facilities are operating to design and whatever that is, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, not to, not to beat it, but I think every Mark raised a great point, you know, who's out there making sure that this is working and I'm... You know, the last person to say there should be some, you know, regulatory. Yeah, ex yeah. exactly. But yeah. I mean, it's such a great <laughs> point that, like, you know, many organizations, usually, you know, ones that are going after profitability, have some kind of department of did it work? You know, our plans. Did it work like we thought it was going to be? And we don't have that in the building right. industry. And I think it's a shame. And I think anybody like us that spends a lot of time in buildings, you know, unless they're very new and very serious buildings, meaning, you know, serving critical functions and purposes, yeah. the, the indoor air quality is probably not what they thought it was or what somebody said it is even. I mean, we talk about commissioning all the time and you guys bring up these great, you know, little stories about where things weren't as they were supposed to be and how they could have easily been corrected and where it went off track. But it, it falls completely in line with this. And Clayton, like you said, take your average building and bring them up to what they should have been doing. Yeah, big impact on energy. Bring yeah. them up to what maybe a new standard is going to be. Holy cow. Yeah, great. You can have 50% people, occupants in your building, and your energy costs just increase 30%. That's going to be that's going to really hurt the the right. the trends or the graphs that we're looking at of uh you know energy usage per facility too. I'm telling you, people oh, are going to like it. I, I think the well, twenty twenty you know whatever you're going to see a dip in twenty twenty and then just a spike way up in twenty twenty two because you know new standards came out and now people have to ventilate their buildings better and now you got to reheat or cool more and. Dehumidifying. I will take the other side of that and say you won't see it because unless it's enforced somehow, yeah. it won't. Happen. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> well, that's yeah, exactly right. So that's sad. exactly the reason. I mean, or, or that, that right. that's going to result just like we saw in just other ventilation standards. It will eventually relax on its own, 
to serve people's self-interest, you know, in running their operations. So, yep. you know, I know, I know we're mo mostly focused on large commercial and industrial buildings, but in, you know, your typical single family residence, the new codes require ventilation. And I don't know of any local jurisdictions. I think maybe once in my career mm. was it known by the contractor, you know, residential contractors and code enforcement officials, the vast majority of them do not enforce or know about single family residential you ventilation requirements. And the you know, and these buildings are the new houses are being They're built tight. very tight, and they might require a blower door test to make sure mm. it's tight, and then totally forget about ventilation. No, yeah, that's it, huge. I don't know. Yeah, it, it is pretty interesting, yep. Jim. I agree. How many people are now like investing in their homes, you know, and, and doing that because of just what we've been through? And they're, and like Mark was saying, maybe their company is saying, hey, going forward, you can work remotely if you want. So, People are setting up their their houses or designing them to be more friendly to that whole, you know, work life balance, but within one space. And that's a huge thing. I think that's a one. It's a great opportunity for a company out there, right? Residential services sure. to evaluate indoor air quality. I know there's, they've mm -hmm. been doing that, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, people are wearing masks inside their homes. I'm sure they're concerned about ventilation. So here's yeah. a question for you guys then, because I was thinking about this as, you know, before we, we entered the, the podcast discussion and um, I don't know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself in the discussion. So I don't want to skip over things, but I'm just, we're on it. So we're going to talk about it, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, Nick and everybody here, a lot of people are now working from home, right? So that I don't want to say dramatically, but depending on the facility and, and how many people are, you know, part of a business probably reduces, you know, uh, utility costs could be a fair amount, right? Um, like, you know, say you're to look at the, the graphs for 2019 um, and your, your commercial and your industrial obviously consume a lot of energy and your residential is fairly small to that, right? You think mm. people like, will that, will the same amount of energy still be consumed if more people are working Res, you know, from residences as opposed to, you know, going to one large facility or um, are there more opportunities to save energy, I guess, by doing the like remote work? Well, I think in aggregate, look at the, you know, marginal energy that might be required to work at home is practically zero. I would agree. I mean, your house is staying so, warm all day, even if you're not there for the most part. And then look at the amount of real estate commercial real estate that is vacant mm -hmm. and will those buildings be shut down? Will they be sold? Will they be repurposed? Um, I would say that in total combined commercial plus residential, that number will go down, but it won't be residential consumption going down. That'll probably stay flat. But I would think if, if you know, you're a, a building owner that has a vacant building, you make every effort to reduce the energy cost by changing temperature set right. points, not ventilating the yep. building, all those things that basically you mothball it until you can resurrect yep. it. I mean, I, I don't know. It's difficult to predict, but I'm thinking it would go down. 
Yeah, I just yeah. I found it interesting looking at it. And, you know, maybe the 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 majority of energy consumption in those types of facilities is processes, right? Um, and product. So if that still has to happen, so maybe you're not going to save a whole lot of energy by not having, you know, the office there or what have you. But I don't know. It was just something I was pondering this morning. Yeah. No, and if you take away ventilation standards in the residences, you know, like we were just talking about, if they're not ventilating as much, but I don't think the big reason that, you know, people get together in big buildings to work is necessarily the energy efficiency of it. You know, right. I agree. Activity or, or yep. like you said, making things. Yep. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm very, I am interested to see the 2020 results because you're referencing 2019 there. Yeah. 2018, yeah. 2019, when I was looking at EIA information. Yeah, no, it will be, it will be interesting to see how these, you know, these things shift. I mean, transportation is a huge, that's you huge. Know, yeah. So, Yep. You know, yeah, that, that shifts that. dramatically. It doesn't, it, or it doesn't shift really, you know, it's not going to be displaced, but you're going to see some trade-offs, I think, between commercial and residential. Industrial, I think they have their own, you know, social forces working. Yeah. You know, you're not, maybe you're not going to see in yours as many people in industry and more robotics, you know? Yeah. But anyways, but yeah, so then you get into the energy piece. I mean, that's the other factor of it. What's, you know, what's, where's energy coming from? Uh, this last week, last couple of days with the big cold wave coming through the country, I think that's highlighted some, some things about reliability, obviously, of the grid. And shortfalls of some alternative energy sources. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I, believe it or not, I read the Green New Deal. So one of the key provisos of the Green New Deal is the Jacobson Plan, which is the most likely approach. And the expectation is that by 20, this is 2030, that the uh, electric production would be in, in these percentages, 30.9% 30, 30 onshore wind, 19% offshore wind, 307 30 utility scale photovoltaic, 7.2 rooftop photovoltaic, 7.3 concentrated solar power with storage, 1.25% geothermal, 0.37% wave, and 0.14% tidal, 3.01% hydro. So what is that? I, I can't do the math that quick. What does that equal? That's 100%. Oh, it is? Okay. I didn't know if they were going to supplement so with... Where's your, uh, what's missing? Nuclear and fossil fuel, nuclear, right? Yeah. Nuclear and fossil yeah. fuel. Okay, so I thought you were reading off a percentage of all the renewable and it was going to be comprised of that. No. Yeah. So in no. 2019, according to EIA, we were 11% renewable energy. And so we're going to take total. that, yeah, yeah, 11% of the total. So we're going to take that to 100%. Yeah. That's not going to happen. <laughs> don't be a debbie downer of course it's going to happen yeah and how is it going to get to wherever you know how is the electricity going to transport from all your wind turbines in the mountains to 100 miles away to where they have to be and all that good stuff well so i i just have a couple of questions you know about all this and especially as we move to disengage from fossil fuels how many tons of batteries will it take to move a tank? 
<laughs> or how will we manufacture batteries that are light enough to fly an airplane? I mean, I, I'm just How are you going to manufacture or mine or whatever all the batteries without burning fossil fuels, too? I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm not. Well, I'm waiting for something to invest in that, that will do that. <laughs> yeah, no, my, I guess my issue would be the time frame. That was in 2030. I mean, it's yep. nine years. You know, it's, it's ridiculous oh, for yeah. a lot of these technologies that are not, you know, quite there to either be mass scale produced or... Like you said, really serve the purpose. I mean, that's that's what you got to replace the sources with. Is it has to do the same job, you know? And that's quality, and that's reliability is a huge part of it. Uh, and not to make fun of you know wind turbines or anything or solar panels. They're fine technologies, but uh, I just don't think but they're I, the kind of sustain the economy that we have going. Well, I, I have to go back and talk a little bit more about energy as it relates. To, so as it relates to our previous podcasts, you know, specifically to redundancy and reliability, it, it, you know, just look at the, the, what, what's happened in Texas. So how much redundancy, how much reliability do we need to have? Well, in general, uh, redundancy and or reliability require diversification. So if I have a technology that is apt to fail under certain conditions, then you supplement or have your redundant equipment be technology that is not reliant or not subject to the same uh, risk factors. So, okay, I have, uh, you know, my primary power supply to the building that goes down while my emergency generator runs on fossil fuel or runs on whatever, or my Mm -hmm. UPS is battery driven. So you diversify your production based on mitigation of external risk factors. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I thought there was more there, Mark. I, we're <laughs> no, I just, everything no, I you're saying, it, you're absolutely right. I think it's intuitively obvious, but there's a myopic focus on the need to eliminate specific technologies without regard to the reliability or redundancy or any of the, you know, it's, it's all based on oh, carbon or CO2 yeah. or however you want to, whatever metric yeah. you choose to apply that eliminates sectors of technology which are i mean they're not the only consideration for technology you know i've said it before and i'll say it again though like where do you where do you measure that metric of carbon emissions where does that start because you know yeah a wind turbine once it's installed and on doesn't have too much carbon emissions but the whole manufacturing installation maintaining what's all that you know, solar panels. Again, this is, I think, where you need the department of did it work and yeah, all that. And, you know, and I've seen this going back, I mean, 20 years, at least I've heard about it, maybe more, you know, developing a, a carbon market, right? And so, uh, you know, a fabricated market based on an invisible gas that nobody can really easily measure. And it's, I think it's dangerous. And you, you look at some of the, it's easy to poke fun at the federal government, I guess, but yeah. you know, I mean, they, they they issue these reports on how much uh, each of the big departments, you know, how much of their energy use in said year was from renewables, and you get departments that are saying 115 percent of what they used was all renewables. I mean, so it skews the numbers, you know, and I get yeah. what you're saying. It's not just bad math, but you know, these the whole 
renewable energy credit. I think it's dangerous. I think, you know, carbon taxes are dangerous because nobody knows exactly how it's going to work and yeah. nobody can really verify it or at least rely on, you know, a multitude of sources to verify it. But when Mark said just one more thing about, uh, oh, you know, different energy suppliers and everything. And I think that's one of the fallacies of perhaps the renewable energies. You can't just build a, a wind farm or a solar field out someplace. And that's the only way electricity gets to, you know, the people and the businesses and the buildings that need it. Because when that goes down, there always right. needs to be, you know, typically a, a fossil fuel plant or a nuclear plant or a hydro plant. Yeah. So, you know, we can't just divest these assets and, you know, in fact, there's a lot of reed stuff up in New York State. There's a lot of coal plants around the country that are paid to not operate but just be available. So right. it's a very complicated thing, the energy situation. <laughs> but Well, it is. And even, you know, at the residential level, I have plenty of friends and, you know, some uh, have the thought process, we're going to put in solar panels so we can be off the grid. I said, is that your plan? Yeah. I said, well, are you building a separate building for your batteries? Well, why do we need batteries? I said, because all solar panels, unless you really design specifically to be off grid, are grid connected and they use the, the grid as your, your bank account, basically. You don't produce for just your house. What do you mean? And then, you know, the thought process takes a different turn because I know plenty of people that have solar panels and an emergency generator because they've come to the realization that, oh yeah, this does, you know, it's, it, it happens very quickly, obviously that even before they go and buy the system that, oh yeah, this doesn't really, it's only a cost reduction project. It's an operating cost. Yeah. Reduction, not an isolation. It's not uh oh, I can be off grid. But I must say like it, talking about the future of buildings and, you know, our, our discussion about how, you know, People are working from home more and that could stick and stay and whatever. Um, I think, honestly, like not that, you know, I think at a, at a large scale level, some of the renewable energy sources we have available today are not super effective. But at, at a residential level, I mean, I would like, I think Elon Musk's idea about, you know, the solar roof is genius. Like if every house, Absolutely. if every house did that and yeah. it doesn't mean the house is independent of the grid because at night you know if you don't have batteries you're still going to need it but i think that's a that is a huge opportunity for the future of you know buildings to change and if people are home more maybe you know like this year i haven't gone out as much as you generally do to eat dinner or on a date or whatever so you don't spend as much money people are investing it in their houses a little bit i think that'd be a smart investment for the future of buildings well i, I absolutely you get all of the uh, film technology that is available and all of the PV technology, it will happen, I hope, in my yeah, lifetime where yep. there will be actual solar roofs. And, and that makes all the sense in the world. Yep. Um, and it you know follows along with the European model to reduce strain on the grid mm -hmm. during you know, peak. peak air yep. conditioning and all those things. Yep. Yeah, a great, great idea. I think that, like, to me, that that's what I would like to see some of the future of, like I said, the buildings go is, okay, if people are home more, working from home, whatever, whatever, and you're not going out to the office, 
I think that'd be a worthy investment into a into a house. And it's still, it, you know, sadly very expensive still. I mean, I understand there's some tax credits and subsidies and all that, but it's still. I think the technology is maybe not there yet to bring it down to a fully manageable cost for everybody. <laughs> but <laughs> no, but that's clearly I think where things are going. More distributed, yeah. yep. uh, more diversified, and yeah, exactly. Supply. Yep. And uh, there's a lot of less risk that goes along with that, but you know there are other concerns too. Mm-hmm. And but I don't think you can fully offset. But and now I'm getting into the whole preaching of the renewable, and but I don't know. I don't want to take it too off the off the rails. <laughs> well, no, it's a, it's a big part of our future. There's no doubt it about is. it. Yeah, but yeah. You're you're touching upon some of the things where if we don't have honest discussions about it, yep. what, it what it is, what it can do, and what are the limitations, then you get people, unfortunately, that may be buying the solar panels for their barn or something and thinking that they're going to be off the grid. Uh, but you know, it doesn't mean it's not a viable thing to do but just yeah like jim said you got to think through the second stage sometimes or most yep. times or even always yep you, you know i think a theme here is that the, on the end user like residential local scale there's a lot of great technology out there <clears throat> and in the future the future looks bright um i agree the tesla solar roof um, and the tesla battery wall I think that's excellent practical technology um, that you know gives us a lot of hope. Some of my concerns are at the utility scale. When I see the numbers Mark just um, ran through a moment ago, you know, I just gotta wonder. I'm like, are what 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 are gonna what are the effects of this going to be? I understand what the goals are and the intended consequences, but I feel like we don't have to go far to get to some potential unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, one we're kind of seeing um, what's going on in Texas right now is, you know, reliability yes. has to be paramount, especially for our critical infrastructure. I'm seeing stories of hospitals in Austin that don't have power or water. They can't heat the building. You know, even their backup systems currently being starved of fuel. Um, and when you, you know, when you, and I'm hearing that, well, Texas, it rarely gets cold. This is like a one in 10 or one in once in a generation event. Um, you know, Nick, you mentioned Black Swan event previously. And to touch upon the author of that book, I don't know if you're referring to him, Nassim Taleb. You know, when you deal with ruin, something that could potentially ruin you, when you're doing risk management, it changes the game. You can't just ratio it. You you have to completely change your way of thinking. And it's not a, just a simple cost-benefit analysis. Oh, you know, if the system fails right. every 10 years or every 40 years, you know, we, we can invest this much money into it. No, yeah. a hospital yeah. can never yeah. fail. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And you have to, I think we're learning an important lesson right now in, in Texas and how important it is to make sure these systems are reliable. So yes, we should be striving um, to make the world a better place and improve uh, our energy systems and technology, but we have to 
pay attention to the unintended consequences of what can happen. It has to be done right. And also, you know, what's going to happen to the price of energy if we go 100% renewable? You know, I'm just thinking in my head of all the second, third order effects and the instantaneous demand for some of these precious yeah. metals and, mm-hmm. and the ripple effect of what's going to happen to the cost of energy and who's going to be impacted, impacted by that. You know, the, the most vulnerable in our society are going to have the hardest time with increased energy prices. You know, it's going to cost them more to heat their building. I mean, it just, it's in our, and it ripples, not just heat and over focus energy and heating and cooling, but that, that ripples through the cost of everything. Oh, yeah. You know, you have to, tra- our products are transported, right? That mm-hmm. the cost of energy impacts everything. And that's why I think we, we can't just do arbitrary, uh, dates and numbers and goals like a lot more thought has to be put into it and that's that's my biggest concern but but i think you know along both of those lines you know first on the commentary the black swan events how many times in a decade will we rebuild you know for example the outer banks i mean every three four years there's a hurricane that decimates the outer banks but it doesn't stop people from building rebuilding immediately because it's a beautiful location because everybody likes to go there the insurance companies you know may or may not pay out we're slow learners apparently so and the other side of it is you know the government signaling that happens when you know we have um legislators and and governmental entities indicating well we're doing away with fossil fuel, the market and businesses, it's called market omniscience, immediately responds. So I can't remember if it was Shell or Sunoco announced they were going to be shutting down 50% of their refineries in the next five years. 50% of their refining capacity will go away. Well, that's a pinch point um, for usable petroleum fuels. And as soon as that capacity goes away or goes offline or it gets sold to a overseas investor, it goes away from, you know, number one, supplying transportation fuel, number two, supplying defense fuel. And immediately that pinch point creates a spike in prices. I am just, uh, I, I think, you know, Nick said, well, we got to think at least to the second level to the third level. We need to think long way out beyond that about you know our national security and, and energy independence for the next 30 years and a, and a short-term knee-jerk plan only makes it that much yeah. harder because once that refinery capacity is gone it may be impossible to get it guys the last couple of minutes jim what you said mark what you said just beautiful <laughs> it really was i mean <laughs> Yeah, good, good. yeah, I think this is a great conversation. And, you know, I'll, I'll add one more thing, though, too. On, on the contrary, um, you know, if energy prices go up and more focuses on, you know, not burning fossil fuels and all of that stuff, I, I would also like to see the future of buildings more focused on, like, utilizing, uh, I don't want to say natural resources in the way, because I don't want to come off in a way that I'm not trying to say it, but, you know, let's build our our building smart, you know, with the way it faces shading overhang. Um, you know, what's, what's the word for a building like, like that? When you think like that, um, passive. Yeah. I use a lot more passive, um, yeah. methods if you would call instead of saying, Oh yeah, I'll just 
burn gas, you know, natural gas because it's cheap. I don't care how you know, you know loose my building is. Clayton, what's or, ironic about this is as we look to the future and employing those types of technologies and methods, we actually have to look in the the past because, I've, you know, I'll, I'll you know before I'll get all these fancy HVAC systems and control systems. Everything was passively, you know, for the most part, heated, cooled, and ventilated. You know, I just think back to some of the there's a houses like in the in the Carolinas that you know are just beautifully designed that you know are just naturally there's a lot of natural convection. Um, you know the the houses you know are built much differently than they are now, more open and you know the, the window placement and everything's different to allow for that. And, you know our modern commercial buildings, you know, it's tough to do, but yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, shading sun studies, a lot of that is, I think going to be um, employed more in the future. You know, a lot of, I just know a lot of our software systems are making it easier to quickly run some of these simulations to give you an idea, you know, rotating a building might have a drastic effect, you know, things like that. So. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I'd be, happy to see more you know insight or outlook into that too because that obviously makes a difference i mean it's funny we we've we've touched a lot of these subjects in some of our podcasts but i know we like mark's got um a boatload of fireplaces and um you know just like the stone like trome walls i think they're called you know where they heat up they maintain the heat so at night it stays warm all that stuff i mean like look at any modern development around today no you know what i mean and nothing of that exists it's all connected to your gas line and go um even if you say oh yeah well, i'll do geothermal that's great but you know you're still you're going into a more technologically advanced uh outlook on conserving energy and you can probably dumb it down a whole lot and do better or just as good yeah but where's the where's the push for that good old conservation I know it doesn't exist. <laughs> no, it's just replacing it with a more efficient type of energy. But yep, you're right. I'm glad to hear that, Jim. That there is an eye on that, and I think the you know, whole lead program, for all its criticisms, did a lot to promote that, and still does. And I think it's a healthy way to look at it. Right, Mark? Don't you say the cheapest BTU or whatever is the one you don't buy or you reuse? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one, the one you, you already or, or use, you already use but even cheaper is you don't use it in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it doesn't exactly fit with right. Uh, right. Uh, a lot of the It's not current. sexy, Nick. It's not. It's not. But it you know? is. But it is. <laughs> Gosh. I, I miss conservation. It, it really you don't hear is. that word. I mean. No, it's not. Well, and I look at, uh, I figure my cost of operation um, of the place in New York is, if I have to heat this this house, it's almost 80 cents an hour for every hour the electric heat is running. So I do my best to, okay, I'll heat it with the, it has a, you know, a fireplace insert and all that good stuff. And um, yeah, that's cheap and that's, you know, self-diversification. I don't depend on the government to say, oh, uh, hey, how should I heat my house? Well, it won't be long though until you can't, I mean, there are many places where outdoor wood burners are outlawed, banned, especially ones that are not catalytic. Um, you know, that's part of, I would think, 
one of the easiest steps that you can you can put together, especially in rural environments. Oh, all very interesting thoughts. Hmm. I can't wait yes. for the future. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so what do you guys think? Like, if you had a, if you, if you know, you put it on the spot right now in this podcast in twenty twenty one, um, and you had to say what's the biggest like energy producer in whatever ten years, what's it going to be? Oh, as far as major fuel source, yeah. Maybe it's still, you know, fossil fuels, but just getting your outlook on things. I, I can't, I don't, I don't really know because as much as we may um, want to move in a certain direction, uh, market forces yeah. drive everything. So when, uh, you know, unless it's legislated, right. like mandated that, you have to shut down um, fossil fuels, the market will drive it. And it, right now there's a huge surplus of natural yep. gas and oil inside the yep. continental United States. So what market forces are put in place to drive away from that? I, I mean, I can't even imagine how, how will we transport you know, goods and services by you know, tractor trailer? You know, 75 to 80 percent of everything that we buy is shipped somewhere yep. on a tractor trailer. Well, making a photo, you know, I'm sorry, making an electric tractor trailer is still several years away from reality. Uh, same is true from air transport. So will all of those as soon as we, we raise fuel prices and transportation costs goes up and f food prices consequently go up and you know, cost to run agricultural equipment. Uh, goes That's a boo-boo. I mean, that, that really sets up a lot of, that's a yeah. lot of destabilizing forces. Well, I think that's it, Mark. It's tough to say. You can look yeah. at the picture in the history, but policy guides market forces too. And I could easily see right. that we're in a situation in less than five years where we're exporting all those fossil fuel reserves we have. We're doing our best to let somebody else use them. And while we're penalizing our own producers and, and consumers with unreliable and expensive energy. Oh, Jim. That, that flies in the face it of does. common sense. Though, <laughs> it scares me I mean, about if it. You put a gun to my head and ask me what the top producer. <laughs> yep. That's what 10 this years. is. Yep. Yeah. This I kind of exactly I, I agree with Mark. Yep. I think oh, pretty much all the reasons he stated fossil fuels will still be number one in, in 10 years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I understand, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be a lot of political headwinds against that, but I just, when I, when I think through mm -hmm. some of the things I was stating earlier, like what's actually going to happen when we, if we really start to nudge people artificially too quickly into some of these renewables and the ripple effects, I think, in 10 years, we'll probably still be on fossil fuels. I, and beyond that, I, I, I think we'll, you know, I, I just see that, you know, some sort of nuclear would have to be in the future. I, yeah. You know, whether it's some of these new yeah. forms of Clayton. Thank you. Uh, whether it's, you know, some of the newer forms of the fission reactors and 
you know, not to get all sci-fi, but fusion, there's a lot going on in the fusion sector too. A lot of private research and development going on there. So I don't know, we'll, 10, 20 years from now, the pace of technology is incredible. Could be looking back and saying, Clayton, delete that podcast. I sound like an idiot. <laughs> but that's just, I'm going to, you know, if I had to no. make a bet, I'm going to go, yeah, 10 years, fossil fuels. But yeah. knowing that the nuclear sector takes a long time, both from regulation and design and construction, I think the next stage after that would be some sort of nuclear. Yeah. Wow, very contrarian. Clayton, how about you? Oh man, I don't know. I kinda I kinda tend to agree with Jim not to take the easy way out. But you know what really interests me too is in looking at the data, and I know this is a buildings um a buildings podcast episode, but you know, we are the hot rodders. So I'm gonna dabble a little bit into transportation. And um it'll be really interesting, you know, on a industrial and commercial scale yeah more fossil fuels still and maybe nuclear would be really cool but um transportation level like it'd be really interesting to see like i know electric is the the big thing right now but what about you know like hydrogen fuel cells well that's still electric but you're storing your electrical energy um in the form of hydrogen rather than a battery Yes, I think that I think that would be really cool to see as a more of a developed technology down the road, as opposed to just the battery. Yeah, I know there's a lot of uh, money in that right now. There's a lot of companies that are pouring all kinds of money into that, and you know, there's a lot of yep. the hydrogen fuel cell CHPs out there, but they're they're trying they're working on it. Yeah, and the automobile scale as well so yeah that's a great example of a potential future technology you know so in 10 years when we listen back there's going to be a lot of nuclear and hydrogen fuel cell they vehicles go, and be they, like, go well well, they go well right. together yep so that's my vote should, maybe the chart will look like it does now except just everything will be a little bit more expensive <laughs> <laughs> great well, a little yeah. bit yeah. It's a natural course, but I do think yeah. it's an epic uh, fight coming between like your typical, you know, growth models that we're under and uh, good old fashioned conservation. I hope that does become in vogue again. I think it it almost, uh, I want to say it has to, but I guess it doesn't have to, but just with the way, you know, People are focusing, like we talked, how we started the podcast, indoor air quality and so on and so forth. I think to focus on that and to really push to make your building operate like it should, um, which obviously will then cost a little bit more money, will hopefully induce some kind of focus on conservation. That's the future building too. Well, uh, so I've been in the business a long time. So in the 80s, we had combination of escalating fuel prices and uh, high interest rates. In the 90s, we had, you know, again, uh, high costs of fossil fuel, uh, $4 a gallon gasoline. Well, all of those, when, when those happen, I mean, what happened to the ESPC business? 
as market energy prices go up, the opportunities for ESPC goes up. So people are yep. investing in com- conservation. So the market as the market goes up, you know, costs go up. Of course, people will invest in uh, conservation and ESPC and every every other thing. And I think this is an opportunity even for the ESPC providers to look at the options available for you know a local arbitrage of uh, fuel sources, uh, you know installation of options so that there can be local fuel switching at a site versus um, you know depending on the grid to provide clean power. There there will just be a lot going on if prices do go up, which I mean I, I yeah. can't see how that they won't go up. Agreed, Mark. Agreed. No, it's <laughs> I, good. I don't know, guys. I think this was a really, and I'm not saying I'm ending it if you still want to keep talking, but um, really good podcast. Part of me is leaving, will be leaving this podcast maybe a little more unsure of the future than when I started the podcast. Ooh, that's provocative. So uh, I, I'm going back to the outline here. And yeah. A couple things I wanted to talk about. The next, yep. next five to 10 year prediction. So Nick, in your five to 10 year prediction, you're talking about AI penetration into building systems, oh. buildings and systems design, project management, commissioning and ongoing management. Oh yeah, it's like, just, just what thought, sure. Let talking? the computers do the smart stuff. Yeah. Are you, so let me ask this. Do, uh, do you know what Stephen Hawking says? Said before he died, the greatest existential Computers. threat to the human race was AI. Yeah, AI. AI. If there's true AI, it's not going to waste its time designing buildings. I mean, true. Well, AI. yeah. Okay. Maybe I, I've always had a kind of a hard time with the with the term. You know, artificial intelligence. I think it's kind of glamorized a little bit but it's very advanced programming you know super advanced and with changes in quantum computing and even the 5g network i think a lot of things are converged what we all think of as ai i I maybe like a little bit like neural networks and machine learning type of thing i mean i'm just seeing the advances in you know where i focus a lot of my time in building intelligence oh. and stuff and things mm-hmm. even three years ago that would take a long time to do uh the stuff kind of knows what you're even thinking you know ahead of time like yeah that's exactly the the visualization that would go right here perfect <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> but so so i see a lot of things changing and i and i read yeah. things about just how quote unquote ai is you know becoming a part of more things so i'm not saying it's bad Mark's saying it's bad. He's saying Skynet's going to take over your air conditioner. Listen, Stephen Hawking was a pretty smart <laughs> character, and that's an understatement. And when he said, you know, people asked him, what's the biggest threat to, you know, life as we know it? It wasn't even nuclear war. It was AI. Because, like, the robots are going to say, like, we don't need the people anymore. And he said, you know, basically first generation AI, the very first thing they'll do that will do is learn how to program itself to be better, faster, uh, more sentient and second, and maybe that occurs in pick how many seconds and then third generation, better, faster yet. And by the time they get to the fifth generation, 
that will be analyzed of whether or not it needs the human race to survive. Don't buy it. Sorry. <laughs> okay. It's a great movie script, but uh, uh, I'm just. Uh, no, I mean, and that's why I the know? term Nothing. is scary, and I don't think it's uh, frankly very helpful, to be honest with you. Artificial, everything's, you know, big embellishment. You got to be hyperbolic about things. I get it. Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert in AI, but, you know, I definitely see more. I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong on that, but. I would think Jim was talking just a minute ago about just some of the software that's available now, and it's been a, around for a while, I'm sure. But you know that you can quickly reorient your building and get a you know full 8760 hourly simulation on what the impact is based on historical weather data for 30 years on your site. I don't know, but that's you know that's pretty advanced stuff. Oh, it's huge, and I don't disagree with any of that, Nick. And I mean, in in your outline i mean you talked about how of how's technology changed i mean you go back you know 30 40 years it was still ink drawings and you know uh, blueprints and now we have you know bim you talk about a quantum change and that's in less than a generation uh you know i think about the, the generational changes that occurred for my grandparents to go from horses to automobiles to tele radio to television and we're in we're experiencing changes yeah. much faster than that. But I agree, the tools are just unreal. Um, and one of your points, and I think it, it needs to be stated, is that uh, you talk about the, the learning curve and that everybody can get better, faster. I agree. And I, in some ways, I look at that as the bottleneck. You know, if you're saying a 25-year-old should be as smart as you are, at age 48, by the time they're 30, I think that expectation should be relatively easy to realize for young engineers and people in, in most industries, just because of the availability of information and learning uh, methods. And it, it, but it really needs to take some initiative. I'm going to get not just, I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you, but I will say that the, the difference in that is you know, with the availability of technology, like for an engineer, for instance, like now computers will do all of the thinking. So there's such a, I think, a less understanding of the, the um, you know, concepts behind it, though, where like, yeah, maybe it takes much longer to to get to where you are, you know, 20 years ago learning this compared to today. But you have a better understanding of all of the steps required, whereas like today you just beepity boop into your computer and it does everything for you so did you engineer it or not great question and then you get into I mean, the cases of liability as well but we've talked about like the psych chart yeah know, before and just to, you know right now there's you know a lot of engineers i'm sure that don't even couldn't even you know sketch out what the general shape and form of it is well because why do you have to it. you just type it into your computer i mean and, and that's that's oh. a good point i mean do you do we want to understand things for the sake of understanding or is it to you know apply that knowledge and we are we have become over decades uh you know more of a knowledge worker economy you know we're not as, as intense we're not a, you know agriculture based and certainly labor forces have reduced but uh yeah, it's very interesting. And, you know, as a user of a lot of this latest technologies, you know, like Mark, you mentioned BIM, and there's a lot of things we can, a lot of great technology 
that we have available to us, you know, but you can't just pop numbers in there and expect it to be perfect. I mean, you still have to have the understanding and the know-how yeah. Yep. because, you know, and that's what takes these, time. All these programs are written by humans. A lot of them are not HVAC or energy engineers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like every time I do a calculation, I'm always tweaking and fixing, <laughs> you know, what's supposed to be coming out of the, these things. So, yeah. well, and that speaks to Clayton's point. If you don't have that knowledge base, then you'd be more trained or, or you know, apt to say, oh, I'm running with this number. This is what the computer told yeah. me. Yep. The computer says this. So it's right. Even going to like AutoCAD, you know, it's, it's super great. And obviously, like, we need it in the world we live in today. But it's so easy to either copy and paste or, you know, draw when you're drawing a line connecting to something for whatever, it could be off by a little bit, whatever you want to consider that is in your industry. And, you know, in your little computer space, it doesn't make any difference. And then you get into the field and you're like, wow, mess that up, you know? True. I'm starting to really dislike this term artificial intelligence even more. I think it's, I think. Ever since Mark brought it up, I, the mood of this podcast, I'm. Not because I think it's AI, AI at all, but yeah. I think it, it paints, it, it frames the. Makes people know, useless. The concept of that it's actual intelligence. Is it? I don't know, but I, I've struggled with that. Well. well. <laughs> true AI is a. Is a True AI is artificial intelligence, but, you know, machine learning and adaptive algorithms, great. But, uh, I'm sure, yeah. True AI means we don't have a job the, anymore. The, yeah. What's our, <laughs> what do we, what do they need us for? What's artificial about it? If it's intelligence, yeah. isn't it intelligent? I mean, what's the artificial part? Just turning into a philosophy. Uh, yeah, I know. It is. So you know, one of my big <laughs> pet peeves is, is the, yeah. the expression self-esteem. Right. Like what happened to the word self-worth or self-confidence? But, you know, I think it's these little changes that I don't like in words sometimes with esteem. Like you're going to esteem yourself. You're going to look up, admire yourself. How narcissistic is that? But no, do I want my children and everybody else? that don't have a, a high self-worth, right, to put a value on themselves. So, again, I go back to artificial intelligence. If it's intelligence... What's artificial about it? Because because we made it. Yes. Okay. That's how well, I think of it yeah, as. We at least. can make I mean, something that's more intelligent than we are. Mark is Mark's fear. I think Sorry. you could you can make something that's no, intelligent well, enough no, to make wait, itself intelli- no. more intelligent than we are. Bogus. I think it's all marketing. So here's what the yeah. difference is in my mind. Nick. It is we are governed by not only rational thoughts but also by a subset of moral values codes um you know understanding that other people are valuable necessary their lives have value and all of the the emotional side of it when you take that all out and basically we have artificial intelligence that may or may not incorporate those things as well as a rational thought process um, that's a holy, that's a dangerous, a dangerous, uh, machine. You're turning me around with that last couple of sentences. Yeah, you're right. You, you, you strip away some of the other things in leaving the synthetic intelligence of right. it all. I'm scared.
I hope as a listener, you took something away from this podcast, aside from just a bunch of guys talking about what they think. Um, maybe you agreed with us, maybe you disagreed. Only time will tell. And yeah, I don't know. I, I guess we didn't leave this podcast, you know, with the with a nice solid definition of the building of the future, but I think we talked through a, a lot of the points and possibilities of it. So it was fun. With Put that it being in the time said, capsule. yes, it's in the time capsule. Ten years from now, I'll have to listen to it and see where we're at. You know. Um, with that being said, thank you guys for being part of the podcast, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned. Our next week's discussion, we will be bringing on a special guest um, to talk about more future stuff, the future of commissioning. So that will be another exciting episode. Have a great day, everybody. Yeah.